Okay. Tax the rich, feed the poor, tell there are no rich no more. Well, there we go, starting off on a very special Friday with our normal Alvin Lee uh, intro lyrics. They're so prophetic. Roger Sales with you. It's the 7th of February in 2020. And today's kind of special. We uh, Special from the respect of last Friday, we didn't have a show, period. Thank you to electrical. I guess electrical poles getting clipped is the only thing we've been able to figure out, Brent. And that's one of the rare days on a Friday in the last five or six years we've been doing these shows. We haven't pulled one off. So uh, it was interesting. Took four and a half hours to get the juice back on. That's why we kind of think it was a clipped pole, you know. Uh, and uh, along with uh -huh. Brent on this Friday, we've got Mr. Ron Gibson, whose name's come up on the show here uh, about a month ago. And finally this week, Ron and I spoke, and I invited him onto the program, and I wanted to hook he and Brent up at least so they'd get a chance to say hello to each other before we started and not make this totally cold, although we do really – usually stress spontaneity here because uh, it's very hard to hide anything when it's spontaneous so i introduced the two together we've got brent winters our usual co-host on fridays and you guys know brent well but we don't know mr ron gibson well and he's along with us dp's on and so is chris and so let's get started by turning it over to you ron and and saying welcome to the show this your maiden voyage here hopefully it won't be the the first and the last and uh, we think you bring a lot of really valuable valuable insight and information to our audience who have a collective yearning to be free. So welcome. Well, thank you very much. <clears throat> Pardon me and <clears throat> welcome to all of your listeners <clears throat> this morning. And it's, uh, I have to say it's a real honor to be asked to be on the program this morning. <clears throat> uh, for those of you who <clears throat> may not have heard of me or whatever. Uh, I live and grew up in Southern Oregon. Uh, my folks were cattle ranchers and I grew up in the country. I learned about forestry. I learned about geology. I learned about the things of, of high value. Uh, both my mother and my dad were firm believers in the constitution and I grew up with that. I grew up with it in the school. It started teaching in our little four-room uh, schoolhouse. Had two grades in each room, an old brick schoolhouse. It's a historic uh, site there now. I guess probably I'm historic, too. As far as that goes. <laughs> we just but, got all our, man. <laughs> but uh, I, I guess the, the point that I'm trying to make before we get started, I have some deep roots in things that are of value. I have tried the best of my life to stay away from wasting my time or being influenced by things that have little or no value. I learned at an early age the difference between right and wrong, not what was politically correct or not correct. So I guess if I could say in my spirit, I have a real daily battle with the things 
that we see in our country today. And my background is engineering and constitutional law. And I took the constitutional law like a duck to, to water. And I guess the main reason is because I was surrounded with that, not only with my parents, but neighbors, my schooling, uh, all the way up. So uh, I wanted to know and understand everything that I could uh, uh, about our Constitution. Our Constitution is founded on the Bible. Our flag is founded on the Bible. Our Bill of Rights is founded on the Bible. Our right of land ownership is founded on the, the Bible. And so uh, it, it really indwelled me with a desire uh, once I started learning about land and land law. Uh, I teach four law classes a month, and uh, that class has grown. I find people that are now hungry for the truth. We have been bombarded with so much lies and deception and whatever. So as I began to, to really get in years ago into land law and land titles, I was, I was fascinated, and yet I was angry as heck mm -hmm. about what we've allowed to happen in our country. Mm -hmm. And so as I began to research further and further and further, I went clear back as I mentioned a moment ago, to the Bible to find out, to find out what, what and where did the right of land ownership come from. And lo and behold, in Scripture, there's 11 different verses in there that address that my people will own and possess the land forever. And the reason that I bring that up twofold, number one, our right of land ownership is an inalienable right. And number two, our forefathers were biblical scholars for the most part, not all of them, uh, for the most part, uh, knew and understood that the fact that land is one of the most critical things and valuable things that you can own because God didn't make it any more of it. And so as they began to deliberate and the items that were to be included in the Constitution, uh, they came up with what I defined as the land disposal part of the Constitution. That's Article 4, Section 3, Clause 2. So when Congress established the General Land Office was commissioned to take full responsibility for the disbursement from lands held in the government trust out to the private sector. That's you and I. And so in that, they went back to Scripture, and in every patent, it is said, is hereby granted to the undersigned, to their heirs and assigns forever. Now, for those of you who may not know what all of that means, and I say that very respectfully because I'm not accusing anybody of being ignorant of anything, but the point that I'm making, that document is a forever document. When the United States General Land Office started issuing land patents, that created in that context and right and in law a forever contract. And therefore, that land patent is 
non, you can't attack it. Uh, there, there's no provision in law to attack a land patent, e- either that or the person that owns it relative to issues of the land. And let me give you an example. Property tax is an unlawful act that has no, and I, bro- I wrote a book on that. It's called You're Not a Slave. But I based it on the land patent, and I went back, and everything that I could dig up, I put into the book in the form that people could read and and, and at least mostly understand. There's no provision for property tax. In fact, I've got numerous court cases that verify that very issue. The other thing of it is that in that land patent, you can convey that from one party to the other, either by inheriting that land or you can do it by purchase of the land or gift of the land by whatever means. And there's a very famous case called Hooper versus Scheimer, United States Supreme Court case that spelled out what you needed to do or reaffirmed what you needed to do to bring your forever benefit forward in your name. That's what I do. I'm, I teach, yes. Could I interrupt for just a second? What year was that case you just cited? Hoofer versus. I'm sorry, what? What year was that decided by the court? You talking about the Hooper versus Scheimer case? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I don't recall right now. I'll have to. I'll have to look at that. I, I don't remember. Okay. <clears throat> but the by having that provision allows you and I of which to bring the the land patent forward. Now you can't create a new patent, but we are drawing the the all of the rights, title, and interest to our land and the bundle of rights that accompany land. And I don't know if your listeners know, but without land ownership, you have little or no rights. And so that's the way God intended to be. That's what our forefathers intended that to be so that we would be protected. If you go back in to the archive records and you look at what the debates were, the members of Congress and the Senate made a specific notation and comment at the hearings that, in fact, that they wanted it so that the poor man would never lose his land to speculators, to bankers, and to unlawful legislation. And so on the basis of that, that's why that forever clause is in that in that uh, uh, <clears throat> land patent document. Now, I'm going to say something here that I'm asking your listeners to listen carefully. When the general land office issues a patent, they're called technically letter patents, just like a letter that you would send to your mom or dad or boyfriend or business letter or whatever. They receive that. That's most generally signed by the president. It will be signed by the uh, secretary of the general land office, etc. The other thing about that, that is not your title. And a land patent is the only title in our laws in this land. Your title is in the Constitution under Article 4, Section 3, Clause 2. 
Now, I, I hope that registers. That's why it cannot be collaterally attacked. The other, other issues, uh, plural, is that all land patents are protected by treaty law, Article 6, Section 2 of the Constitution. It has further protection under the Fifth Amendment that it can't be taken without just compensation. It also has further protective covenants in Article 1, Section 10, Clause 1. And there are, we call it, the, the citizens' uh, constitution in, in a much smaller scale against unlawful state legislation. But number one, and that is that no state can legislate a bill of attainder. And what a bill of attainder is, is like a tax foreclosure sale or any foreclosure sale, because you don't get the benefit, at least in a number of states, they're a notice of sale, and then you have no means to, to be heard before a jury, you have no way to cross-examine, etc., etc. The second thing of it is that no state can legislate a ex post facto law. An ex post facto law means that you had a right yesterday, and today they take that right away from you. Remember that the patents are God-given. The right of land ownership, excuse me, is, is God-given. And no one has the ability of any legislative body or individual to take away our inalienable rights. And so as we move on, the third one is that no state legislation can impair the obligation of contract. Wow. In other words, no state legislation can impair or infringe or damage or diminish or harm that patent whatsoever. Let me give you an example. Property taxes, that's an infringement upon that, that protective covenant. Number two is land use regulations setbacks, building permits, and on and on and on it goes. That is a tremendous document, these land patents. And there's only one title to land. And your warranty deed is not. A warranty deed is what we call in law a color of title. And a color of title means that there's a, pardon me, a title somewhere. But that isn't it. A warranty deed only conveys two things. It conveys the fact that you have an equity interest in a given piece of land. And number two is that you have a right of possession, but zero right of ownership. And if you folks will go look on your warranty deeds, you will see that you're listed as a tenant. What is a tenant? It's a renter, isn't it? Mm -hmm. That's why you're subject to all of the regulations, etc., and you have to get that out. That's what I teach in my land patent seminars. In fact, if which you, I've got one. You and Go your ahead. wife are there. They call you tenants in common. That is correct. That uh, is absolutely uh, correct. A couple of people got back to me with the answer to my question, Ron. That case was in 1859. And it makes perfect sense yeah, now because there was a year before the Civil War when all this changed. <laughs> well, in law, it did not change. Well, that set the what stage changed. for fraudulent changes ahead in that, an that, evil that, agenda. That's, that's, 
that's a true statement. That's absolutely correct. It's the same thing of what happened when, in 1933, when the United States declared bankruptcy. They had no authority to declare bankruptcy. That there was a financial move and a political move. Yep. And after that, they started... I have people all the time asking me this question. Ron, what happened to the patent? How did we end up getting a warranty deed rather than when I bought my property that I got a copy of the patent? What happened was when the, the, the bankruptcy took place in 1933 and then the implementation of the Administrative Procedures Act, which yeah. in essence changed from our constitutional republic to an administrative corporation, because Correct. that's what it is. Correct. Then in essence, they had to figure out some way to control you and I and our land because they knew there was a lot of money and with land ownership and a bundle of rights, they couldn't control us. So what they did is when you bought a piece of land, every buyer from the original grantee who then received the patent and a copy of the uh, buy-sell agreement. Well, when all of this legislative unlawful legislative stuff came down, then in essence, when you went to the recorder's office and you gave them your patent to get recorded in your name, they kept the patent and they issued then in return a warranty deed. Okay. In other words, they stole those titles. Okay. It's the same thing that goes on with automobiles because the true title is is a manufacturer's statement of origin, but you never see one of those that's delivered uh, over to DMV and they give you a certificate of title. Now, back in the eighties, I bought a German car out of Germany and my, I had a friend over there that could get one of those cars, U.S. specs, back into the U.S. with no taxes because of his job. And I purchased one, and I picked it up in Jacksonville, and I have the original manufacturer's statement of origin on that car. When I went to no. DMV, and I didn't know all this stuff back then, obviously. Uh, and when I went to register it there in Georgia and Atlanta, and I took, and I tried to give them, I thought I'm supposed to give them the manufacturer's statement of origin. They didn't want it. They told me I could keep it. I've still got it. I got it with me. Uh, and uh, But that's the same exact type of, of, of way they do things. And w- what we say around here, Ron, is they do the same thing over and over and over and over again. And the reason they do it that way is because it works. And that leads them to a spot where they become predictable because of their past success. It's somewhat of an Achilles heel for them. But I just wanted to make that connection between the DMV and your certificate of title for your automobile and what you just said about the land patent, the same exact thing. That is correct. But that's so that you folks know, that's how they accomplish stealing the title to our land uh-huh. because they won't bring it out in public. But the mindset is simply, well, now we own it because we have the patent. And so. <clears throat> Uh, the patent, if you look back, I wanted to mention too, all patents, all patents are allodial. And what allodial means, the definition of allodial means that owing to no one or in one's own right. And so 
if you have an allodial title with your patent, which you do, and every one of them are allodial, and I can validate that by the report from the General Land Office to the Senate and Congress, dated 1870, page 28 and 29. And the allodial title means, if I can put it in a little different context, that you are king of your land. Yep. When the Commonwealth of, of, of Delaware went to sign the Constitution and the words, we the people, made us kings of our land. And one of the things that I share in my seminars is that if we want to be free in this country, we better start acting like kings instead of acting like slaves. Amen, brother. That's what we preach here on a daily, hourly, by-the-minute basis. you got to take personal control of this because it's your decision. If you go back to Vattel's Law of Nations, it states that every man has the right of personal political self-determination. It's your deal here. Now, look at it another way. If they, according to an umbrella genesis concept like Vattel, okay, if they tell you what you are, that's tyranny. But if they set it up, backwards dialectically where they can phrase it and ask you what you are and you answer not understanding ignorance of the law is no excuse well hell when they ask you are you a citizen of the united states are you a resident you ought to know what the hell you are shouldn't you well most people don't i well of course of course and that's the trick and that's the fraud and that's what we can exploit but Ron, I, I love what you've given us so far, and it's like kind of, because this isn't our usual subject and topic around here. It's more status stuff, um, which one of the things that piqued my interest personally when your information came up was a call from Samuel, who's one of your, just bought your book and who you've had a conversation or two with. and um, And as I was thinking about it, I thought, you know, our whole deal here is freedom. Now, we approach it differently because we attack the status fraud. But basically, you can't own land unless you're a free man. So you can acquire that through the Secretary of State addressing the fraud, or it appears if you want to go this way and get total land ownership, you get it by default. Not the land ownership, the freedom. And, and and that's true. I respectfully differ a little bit. Maybe it's just the way that, that I view it. But in the in-depth study that I've been doing this stuff for 48 years, and I don't claim to know it all because I, I seek daily to learn. Uh, I have people call me an informational junkie. You know, I don't smoke, I don't chew, and I don't go with the girls that do. <clears throat> but when I was in the Marine Corps, people going to the bar at night, and uh, I went to the law library and studied and studied. But the point that I'm making, that by our creation of Almighty God, we're sovereign. I agree. And, and, and nothing can take that away from you unless we relinquish it by some form of contract. But we're still sovereign. Okay. Well, it, now, it, it has taken, been done. The, it has been done with contract that we don't recognize, and, and it has been done with fraud. 
But that is correct. Okay. But so, now that's where I'm going. Because of the element of fraud, that negates any and all contracts. Correct. So the fact that we have to go back and untie that knot of being bound, <clears throat> whatever, uh, from my study, uh, I showed that we don't have to do that. We may have to acknowledge the fact that we're already there because from, from my background, we've never lost it because everything that we deal with in our society having to do with government uh, is a fraud. Yeah. All of it. All Every of it. bit of it's a fraud. Totally agree. And so I, I'm not bound by items that were done under fraud that affect me and my property and my rights. So I want to share a, a court case with you folks, and I encourage you to go look it up. And it's called City of Dallas versus Mitchell. And in that case, it is, I think it's about the third page in that, uh, somewhere in that ballpark. But the court stated something very, very unique and true. Our rights do not come from government. Our rights come from our creator. Amen. And we're not obligated to government rules and regulations unless we volunteer to be subject to those rules and regulations. Which is what they very craftily fa fabricated, actually. We'll have more discussions on that as an initial show. And I wanted to, because you've given us a nice drink of water out of the fire hydrant there, and I wanted to see what Brent weighed in on, and we got Chris on, on also who probably would love to ask a question at some point. But, Brent, I want to defer to you and, and see uh, what your response is to what Ron's given us so far. Well, for, <clears throat> first I want to know, tell us, do you have a website? No, I do not. I've got, we're working on it. Uh, I have to confess I have been so busy uh, with uh, – these land patent seminars for a number of years that uh, I just didn't pull up the brakes long enough to, to get it finished up, but we are working on one. So I apologize that I don't have one up yet, but. Well, then how do, how do people get your book? They just get a hold of me. I'll give you my, my address and my phone number and, and my email address and whatever time that, Roger wants to to plug that in. Well, well, well listen, I Roger, I can see can already. Tell us now? Well, I can already see we're going to have Ron back. You know, uh, probably many times because he drinks from the same trough we do, obviously. So we'll get that well, out. Can he give us his? Uh, can he give us his phone number and his or his email? Whatever he wants to give contact information. Yeah, you you want to give? You feel free to give out any contact information, Ron. Uh, no, I'll, I'll be glad to. Okay. You bet. Well, uh, well everybody uh, again, out there, I'll I'll try. I'll put this on the end of today's show description. I repost these shows on a site, Ron, and you can send it out to people and spread this around. It's got the player embedded and all that, and it's got a description module. And I'll put this information at the end of the description module today in today's show listing. So, but go ahead and give it now, and hopefully people have got your pencils and papers. Should you want to okay, write it down. Let me let me give you my address first, if you want. Uh, there's there's three different methods of purchasing. I have two books. One of them 
is what you need to know about land patents. And the second book is that you're not a slave. But either one, they're $45, that includes the postage, etc. But my address, uh, you or let me back up a minute here. Uh, you can send me a check uh, to Ron Gibson or a money order to 815 North Central Avenue. That's 815 North Central Avenue, Suite D, as in David. And that's Medford, Oregon, M-E-D-F-O-R-D, 97501. I can, you can send a check or a money order. When, when you do, please add your phone number so that I can call back and make sure that you got it or if I have a question, because sometimes people order something, they send me $45. And I don't know which book it's for, so I'm just saying that really helps me out. Cause, okay. And then I have I have a PayPal uh, account if you'd rather purchase it, and by that means, and I'll give you my email address, and that's the access to my PayPal is my email address, and that's D as in David, R as in Romeo. I is in ice cream. T is in Tom. E is in Echo. C is in Charlie. R is in Ron. G is in Gibson. At hotmail.com. That's D R I T E C R G at hotmail.com. Fantastic. So if you'll let me know if you're interested in one or both of the books, I'll be glad to send it to you. you know, I always put my phone number there so that you can call me if you have any questions. The book's pretty thick, the patent book. It's 179 pages by 8 by 11 on the thing, but I cover a horrendous amount of stuff in there. And, a lifetime, and like I say, is And a lifetime of research. A, life, a, a lifetime of study. Well, Was there another question that your gentleman had? Brent? I, I want to go back when we're ready um, uh, after the question and, you th and read you something. Someone gave us a website where you've got some stuff posted on. Some mining it, mining or something was in the title of it? Well, if you go on YouTube and you type in land patents or Ron Gibson land patents, You'll see a five-part series okay. of a seminar of a seminar that I did in Kalispell, Montana, and uh, it's about six hours long, uh, the whole five segments of it. But uh, that was uh, posted on there for me by Northwest Liberty News. Okay, and uh, that is it. He told me that's one of the highest uh, sought-after. Uh, videos that he has. So, Great. and and I'm like, what what I'm trying to do, I'm trying to get the information out. And if I can share a little quick story, sure. I got a friend of mine that had me do some legal papers for him. And uh, when we got all done, he grabbed a chair. We were sitting at his kitchen table, and he grabbed a chair and he turned around with the back of the chair 
was facing his chest and he folded his arms and sat on it. He said, Ron, he said, I have a question. And I, his name's Rick. And I said, what's that, Rick? And he said, who is your protege? He said, who, who are you bringing forward to take this over when you can't or won't or something happens to you? He said, I, I, I'm curious of who that is. And I said, Rick, let me ask you a question. I said, who do you know that has the background of the subject matter, the law, all of the stuff having to do with land law, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I said, who has a desire who will take the time to go out and to spread this and share with people so that they know how to bring their land back into a protective covenant. And he pulled back from the chair and he looked me square in the eye like a deer in a headlight. And he said, Ron, I don't know of, of, of anybody. Yep. I said, Rick, that's my answer. Yep. I wish I had a hundred people that I could train, but you have to, I call what I do a mission. Yes. And it, 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 it's a mission field. I bring the Lord in it because he's the one that gave us the land. And I believe with all my heart, one day we will stand before him and give an account as the Bible says, and he's going to ask us what we did with our land. What, not only that, but what we did to protect our land. I'm not talking about just our individual little piece lot here or little farm or big ranch. I'm talking about as a nation. There's a scripture in my Bible that says you reap what you sow. We have not done a very good job as people of this nation who have made government accountable. And now they got their foot on their throat and they're trying to grind it in. And I'm telling you, I could share some stories with you that would curl your hair, but I won't get into it right now on the air. Will it grow some but hair? If I may, will, will they grow some hair? <laughs> <laughs> I love your sense of humor. <laughs> I want to go back. I, I want to go back real quickly so that people may not understand what a bill of attainder is. Let me read you the definition of a bill of attainder. A bill of attainder is defined to be, quote, a legislative act which inflicts punishment without a judicial trial, where the legislative body exercises the office of the arrester, the judge, and assumes judicial magistrate and pronounces guilt upon the party without any forms of safeguard of a trial, and then affixes the punishment. And i got a whole gob of cases here. Wow. Let me read you another one real quick. The state citizen is immune from any and all government attacks and procedures absent a contract. Yep. And it gives a gob of, of case thing. Yep. But that's that's what even is a bill of attainder to be stopped on the highway. Yeah. That that is an arrest. When you the light goes on, then in essence, that's arrest. And that's an unlawful stop unless the officer sees you committing a crime. Going 55 in a 45-mile-an-hour zone is not a crime. And I know a guy that was going down a highway in Nevada 
at 110 miles an hour, and there wasn't a car within 10 miles either direction. And a cop pulled him over, gave him a citation, and he went to court. There in little old dinky, blinky-eye town there had a magistrate judge. And the, the judge asked him how he pled, and he said, not guilty. And he said, well, why is that? He says, simply because the officer did, did not witness me in the form, and he read him the statute on that, and he had to dismiss the case. Unless you're endangering somebody else, and that's the same with all states, have what we call a police power. And the police power is very, very, very narrow. They're abusing that so bad, and I got a case going right now from a woman and her son where the uh, code enforcement people and the, and the guy rebuilds old, old vehicles, makes beautiful vehicles. But to look at it, you think it's a pile of junk. And he's got a, a motor home there, uh, and he's got a travel trailer, and they're trying to claim that somebody's living it. But anyway, to make a long story short, in that document, I just finished it yesterday, we addressed the issue that, in fact, where is their title? And I want to share a little story with you about a court case, if I may. Sure. It's a 1984 case called Summa Corporation versus State of California Coastal Commission. Summa, S-U-M-M-A, Corporation versus State of California Coastal Commission. The State of California decided, like most belligerent governments do, that they're going to take Suma's property, that is beachfront property from the lagoons out to the edge of the ocean so that public can use it for a public beach. And Suma said no. So anyway, they end up going to the Superior Court of California, and the Superior Court rules against Suma. Suma then appeals to the California Appeals Court. They rule against it. Went to the state supreme court of california they rule again so then he appealed it to the federal district court the federal district court ruled against him and then he went to the ninth circuit court of appeals in san francisco they ruled against him he then petitioned the united states supreme court and they took the case and very interesting what the court said it said this is, they're talking about the patent now. Because that property was patented, the court said this is settled law. Settled, like no question about it. And what that, that's court language within the court system. You don't see that much outside. But what they were telling the state of California, this is what it is when it started. It's been continued up until today. And today forward, it's going to be the same thing. We're not going to change it. That patent is in stone, and you cannot violate or impair that obligation of contract. The next thing that the, that the Supreme Court told the state was that the patent is protected by treaty, Guadalupe Hidalgo Treaty, having to do with California and the other mm -hmm. states that mm -hmm. were all part of that, that treaty. And he said the third thing of it is that they did not have privity. And privity means lawful standing <clears throat> to bring an action. <clears throat> and it said 
you were not named on the original patent. Hello? Pretty interesting. I've not heard of that. Have you heard of that case, Brent? Yeah, I heard of the case, but the name, I don't remember. I just remember it went up, and it's the same one I'm thinking of. It had to do with uh, uh, beach property. Imminent that is correct. Of course. That's, that's correct. So they were trying yeah. to... 19, that was, uh, they were basically trying to exercise eminent domain, right? Is that what started that's it? That's correct. Okay. That's correct. But it's a 1984 case, for those of you who want to look it up, but it's Summa Corporation versus State of California Coastal Commission. <clears throat> and in that, I found it fascinating, which is true from my other research, but the Supreme Court at this late date, that being 1984 even, mm -hmm. of the fact that unless a government entity is named on a patent, they have no jurisdiction to infringe any regulation upon it. Very and that's the same principle of the city of Dallas versus Mitchell case. Now, having, having said that, what we have found is numerous cases after that that, in fact, basically say the same thing. So when I have somebody that comes to me with a problem, such as this woman and her son, I sent a blistering letter to the county with all of the court cases and stuff showing that they did not have standing uh, privity, as it's called in law, uh, to infringe any kind of rule or regulation just because of what I re read to you folks about a bill of attainder. And so now I'm going to be real interested to see how they respond to that because they're, named, they're not named on the on the patent title, and then there's a very very unique law under Corpus Juris Secundum 73B, as in boy, and what that says is that neither party can change anything on that land patent once it's been issued. Now, only but for one exception, if in fact when a patent is issued by the General Land Office. If there is evidence of fraud mm. or obvious clerical error, the general land office can nullify that patent. Other than those two items and those two items only, nothing can change that. No state legislature, no court can infringe upon that patent. Ta-da, 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 ta-da. They have to abide by that patent. It's the only true title in our land laws in the United States. Brent? And it has numerous protective covenants. I so do you travel around? Do you travel around and do seminars now? Is that what you do? Yes, sir, I do. I've got one coming up here the 1st of March, uh, <clears throat> which will it's on a, on a Sunday. Uh, and... <clears throat> in Kingman, Arizona, and my patent seminars are uh, eight hours. We go from eight to five, and I cover basically a lot of, I can't cover the entire book. There's just too much in the book. But in my book is case law after case law after case law after case law. And the reason that I did that 
I didn't want someone thinking down the road, well, that's just Ron's opinion. <clears throat> well, this is not my opinion. This is fact and law, period. And that's what I deal in. I don't deal all that much in statutes and codes. Uh, that's for an attorney. Yep. I'm a lawyer, not an attorney. <laughs> attorney and lawyers are not one and the same. And everybody thinks that they are. And I can tell you they are not. That's why lawyers deal in LAW. Attorneys deals in statutes and codes, which are nothing more than corporate regu regulations, corporate bylaws, if right. you please. Correct. So you go, you travel, travel all over the country doing this. That is correct. I and just need someone to sponsor me to go there to, to locate a place uh, where I can hold the meeting and someone who will collect the money for me and uh, whatever. And I travel there and I do the seminar. And, what do you charge for the, to come to the seminar? I charge $150 per person. If it's a husband and wife, it's an additional $50. But with that, they get a book. They get this land patent book. Are you still living up in, uh, around Medford? Yes, sir. <clears throat> oh, so do you live right in Medford or close to Medford? Yes. Well, just so outside getting, of Medford. That's getting to be the hemp capital of the world, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> and I'm telling I mean, you, this, those, this, huh? Go ahead. This, marrow, this marijuana, ever since the state legalized that and the issue of the hemp, it is literally... For all intents and purposes, destroyed our part of the country. And it drove land prices. Pardon? Uh -huh. Tell I say tell tell us about it. I want to hear about it. Well, first of all, it brings in every type of riffraff that you don't want in your community or surrounding area. The thievery went up about seven or eight hundred percent. Property uh -huh. owners. Uh, who sold or leased their land, leased it, they did their deal, and then they never got paid for it. And what it did, uh -huh. it drove the real estate prices up so high that then the county comes along with their little stroke of a pen and increase your taxes 20 or 30%. Sure. There are a lot of elderly people live here, and they, this used to be timber country, and the environmentalists ruined that. We got uh -huh. trees that are rotten on the stump, burning up in fires, whatever. But uh -huh. a lot of crime has moved in here. The cartel moved in, and it, it's been a nightmare, I'm telling you. Don't let uh -huh. it happen in your area if you can help it. So you're, state, you're saying... Uh -huh, go, ahead. go ahead. No, no, go, go ahead. I was going to say, you're saying that the uh, this phenomenon... But let me back up. Uh, Oregon, and that part of, the, of Oregon, had become... Uh, hemp growing region back in the 70s illegally, hadn't it? In the 70s, we and were 80s. the timber 70s and early 80s. We were the top producing timber state in the nation. Okay, gold but mining. around Medford, didn't a lot of those uh, gold or <laughs> didn't a lot of those Californians come up there in the seventies and eighties and start growing pot? 
Well, well, that's true, but it was at a very low level. It did not okay. have a sweeping effect that uh-huh. it, 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 it has today. And, and so uh, the sweeping effect, the sweeping effect has just occurred within the last year or two then? Well, probably the last four years. Okay. So, uh, the population of Medford is, is growing because of it. Yes. And, uh, and that, and not, going, not be, well, hang on, not because yeah. of that so much, although that is increasing. The biggest factor of people moving here are from California and that lunatic governor that they've got down there. And we have his sister as governor of Oregon. And now the Californians oh. are finding, shit, what happened? We thought we were getting away from that stuff. Uh-huh. But uh-huh. I remember back in the... Back in the 70s, there was a sign somebody put up, and I used to drive Interstate 5 back in the mid-70s, and uh, there was a sign up there on the border uh, going north, and it said, "Now, now entering Oregon, leaving California, please resume normal behavior. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I went recently. The reason I ask these questions because I, I, I go through Oregon once in a while, but I don't spend a lot of time there. But recently, I went to a seminar in Medford. I was invited by another couple, and they said, we want you to come, we want you to come, I want you to come and just listen. And I went to the Hemp University. There's a Hemp University established in Medford. Um, and we went to, had a lot of people there and I'd been to a lot of farm meetings my li- in my life cause I'm from the Midwest and I've been to fertilizer sales meetings and, and feed for livestock sales meetings and, and herbicide sales meetings. And all of them were usually somewhere at a building on the town square and all the farmers had come and the company would feed everybody. And then they'd, uh, have somebody try to make a sales pitch. And uh, it was all very enjoyable. You get to meet meet your neighbors again, talk to them over a meal. Well, that, that wasn't what this was like. This was different. And the reason it was different, it was a farm meeting. It was about people who were in agriculture. But the people were weirdos, a lot of them. Not all of them, but a lot of them. And I wasn't comfortable being there. Oh, yeah, yeah. But I, what I didn't know was, I knew it was booming. I knew it was exploding, the whole hemp thing. But what I didn't know was the effect it was having upon the local community, and you're telling me a little bit of that. But I did realize that land prices had gone up. I'd heard people talk about that. Uh, I don't see that. Now I'm asking you. Now, I don't see that there's anything wrong with hemp as an industrial product, the oil and the fiber. But like you pointed out, it seems like it's drawn uh, the wackos, and it's uh, such a hype that it has a way of, bringing riffraff into your part of the world. And that's what you're telling me. Go ahead. That is, that is correct. Uh, And you, you mentioned something that I wanted to comment on. You're absolutely, I don't have a problem one with him. It's, it's a wonderful God given product, but what goes and is with associated with that, has has made things very very difficult for people here in Oregon and Southern Oregon is not the booming economy of the world. Uh, when they took the timber industry, our whole economy in all of Oregon, with the exception of Portland, 
uh-huh. we we got hit extremely, extremely hard. And in 1980, in Jackson and Josephine County, that that's Medford Grants Pass area, we had 39 mills. Today we have two. Whoa. No, I'm sorry. Two. Uh, you broke. Wait, wait, wait. You broke up because of my end here. It wasn't your fault. And I, you skipped and I didn't, your voice skipped on my computer or whatever I'm listening on here. And I didn't hear what you said. Please say it again. I said that in 1980, uh-huh. we had 39 mills, lumber oh, producing yeah. mills of different, et cetera, et cetera. And because of the environmentalists claiming that we're destroying the spotted owl, which was an absolute fraud from from day one, uh, <clears throat> that today we have two mills, two. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's so not 30, very many. 30, 37 of them went broke. And that, that goes directly back to, and you made this point a while ago, that goes directly back to land. Everything rests upon land, and everything rests upon the law of the land. There is nothing Amen. Else. And you take Amen. that away, everything. Uh, now, with that, I, I see that and what you're saying, and I think that we should say it more often. We have nothing that we haven't received from above, and God has chosen to give it to us through land. And there isn't a breathing soul on the faces of our earth that isn't wholly, not partially, wholly dependent upon the land. And even people that live in houseboats by the hundreds of thousands, and I've seen them on the other side of the world, they still have to tie up uh, to the to the pier or to the land and or close to it so they can get what they need. Uh, the ocean is a dangerous place. People do live on it because they're on the water in houseboats, but still, everyone has to come back to the land. There's no escaping it, and it is the constant reminder to all of us of our our dependence our dependence upon our Maker. Because we are, everything we have is derived, and it's derived from the land, and we have land. Uh, there is nothing else. The law of the land is what should govern our lives. Taking care of the land should be our chief focus in life. And the covenants of God that the Bible sets forth are about land from cover to cover and lid to lid. And everything in the Bible starts with a uh, uh, bequeathment of a parcel of real estate to our grandma and our grandpa, Adam and Eve. They broke the law, polluted the land by disobeying the the covenant of land tenancy that the landlord had given them. He threw them out, and the story of the Bible is a story from start to finish about God's uh, attempts to reestablish man's relationship to his land the way he wants it established. And There's no other reason for him to have put us here, and he says that. We're here to do that, to see to it that the land is taken care of and not polluted. And that's what we're doing. We're polluting yes. our own land. And it will not last, and our maker will throw us off of it. We are now, presently, as I speak, in the judgment. God, judgment's not coming. It's here. When you get people, and the whole society is happy to say that people who can't tell men from women, uh, when they say that they're okay and they can sit on our our court benches and be governors of our states, and I assume that's the problem you're having there, then you're not going to, you're not going to have anything that man needs to live an enjoyable life because the land, 
That's what's destroyed is this covenant. That's what the evil empire wants to destroy is man's relationship to the allodial landlord's land. That That's key to the covenant. You destroy that, if the evil one could destroy that, he would destroy everything that Jesus Christ came to do, period. But he's not going to do that. But he's going to keep trying. He's going to make our lives miserable. And that's the story of mankind, the miserableness of man, because he doesn't have the relationship with land that his maker demands that he have. Back to you. Um, I wanted to Amen. ask if I could, wow. Ron, uh, and I've delved and touched on this subject for uh, a time, you know, over the last almost 30 years I've been in this, not quite as long as you have. Um, but I was told you alluded to and mentioned the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo earlier, and that is the southwestern, that's Arizona, New Mexico, California area, Nevada, I think. Uh, yes. What about the east coast and the eastern part of the country? Well, what is your question about? Or do they have land patents? Can we go back to treaties and that stuff in researching yes. this there, too? To answer your question, yes. Okay. Yes. Yes. The answer to that is yes. Right. I'm helping some people in uh, uh, Virginia right now, and I've had uh, patents that I've helped people deal with in Florida, uh, New York. In fact, I've got one patent project that I'm doing right now for a guy in New York and, uh, you know, Kentucky, Wyoming, Dakotas, Washington, California, Texas. See, the difference about Texas is Texas issues their own land patent because when they became a state, they did not relinquish their land back to the United States government. Right. Their attitude was we fought and died for it, and we're keeping it. Right. And so they created their own Texas General Land Office, but it functions verbatim as the U.S. General Land Office. In fact, I've heard that said, the state of Texas has to renew that with the federal government based on those old agreements all uh, every year, I believe. Well, I'm not, I'm just, not sure. That, some length that, of time. That, that, Simply because, uh, well, well, let me share a little something that the folks may not know. We started out in this country uh, becoming and creating sovereign states. And sovereign states means that the government is, is run and controlled by the will of the people. When the Administrative Procedures Act came in, to being unlawfully, like everything else Congress and the state legislature do, uh, which was June 11, 1947, mm -hmm. if my memory serves me correctly. Mm -hmm. But what, what happened then, the United States government, in pressure and coercing them through gifts of money, they then incorporated every state in the United States is now a, a territorial corporation. They are not sovereign states. So a state now, by law, here I'm talking about law, cannot claim states' rights because they are a subcorporation to the United States corporation. They're, so they're here, basically here we are. 
a political subdivision is the way I've heard it put that I think is real accurate. Another that, way that, to phrase it's it. It's the same thing. Yes. Yeah, same thing. So now we have these territorial corporations that function strictly by contract. Yep. Because there are no laws in the state of Oregon. I don't know about the other states, but we've not had a judicial court or legal system, lawful legal system, uh, since 1910. They did away with the judicial courts, and they became administrative courts. Well, an administrative court does not have jurisdiction over you unless you are caught in the act of a crime. The In the act of a crime. And also the administrative basis is that you're guilty of everything and you have to prove your innocence. Whereas under a sovereign state and our constitutional republic, we are innocent until proven guilty. Do you think and just everything about it? They've turned 180 degrees. Do you remember the declaration everything. of war uh, back in that era? Uh, you know, the First World War era, where they made Germany German citizens the enemies declared, and then they took that exact same speech in '33, and they took the Germans out and made citizens of the United States the enemy. If that guy's researching Colorado, who was a veterinarian about 30 years, 25 years ago, and I don't remember his name, that did real, real, real in-depth into the emergency and the declaration, and I remember that coming out of him. You bring up another real important point here is the APA. The APA are the rules for the administrative state. The administrative state didn't really come into being until after the bankruptcy in 33. And Roosevelt tried to get a lot of those New Deal programs through, and he ran up against the Supreme Court, Schechter versus Schechter Poultry, I remember one, because it's such an unusual name. Uh, and, and, And they restacked the court because of that. But... My point being is this is the rule the, the rule book for the administrative state, and they didn't get it passed till almost 20 years later, okay? Just like you said, it wasn't passed until 1947. It's Title V, Section 552 at SEG in the code, I believe. And uh, that's the rules they've got to play by. Now, for a long time in the way we approach this, Ron, I have stressed to students that the – if you're having trouble getting your arms around this, start concentrating on the administrative state because the administrative state's what they had to put into place to oversee the new society they've created. Um, I picked up a speech, and we talk about it here. I was curious if you've ever heard of it, and it wasn't it just by a stroke of God guiding me that, I, that we found it. Have you ever heard of a speech called Experimental Jurisprudence and the New Deal? I've heard of it. I've never had the opportunity of which to read it. I'm going to send you. If you would, could I'm, you send that to I'll, yeah. I'm a, yeah, I've got it. I've got it. I'll go back and find it and send it to you. I was doing shows with Al Addisk, who I assume you probably know Al's name. He was out in Oregon for a while. Uh, and at the time, num- a number of years ago, and I, when this came up, and, I, and one of the listeners searched it up and got it to me, and I sent it to Al Addisk, and I'll never forget his comment. And he said, that's the damn, most damned in government document I've ever read. 
Okay. And what this was, and this tells us a lot, you can read between the lines a whole lot here. And that speech was given at the annual American Association of Colleges and Law Schools in 1933. And that year, and I wrote i found they're still in existence the american association of colleges and law schools i found them on the internet and i wrote them an email and asked them this question needless to say i never got a response because that year they moved the convention where this speech was the keynote speech given by a guy named jerome frank who was the league head legal guy at what agency or what department the department of agriculture now, why was the Department of Agriculture's top legal guy given a speech at the American Association of Colleges and Law Schools at this critical date in Chicago when they moved the convention to New Year's Eve? Wow. How many other annual meetings have been held on New Year's Eve? That's the question I wrote in the email that I never got an answer to. Uh, and, and you can see the change. Well, we and, know that answer. Of course. Yeah. It, it, it's a rhetorical question. Uh, but a lot of our people want proof. You know, they're from Missouri. Uh, but I'll get you that speech. You can read it. It's quite insightful. But it set the stage on what was to come. And through the next 17 years, they didn't have the enforcement mechanisms, rules in place, which are all these myriad of agencies that control us now. All right. And uh, it, it's extremely interesting, and if you're having trouble getting your arms around this, concentrate on the administrative state. It wasn't there before 1933, and it's here in abundance now. It rules the country. There were original. you know how many administrative agencies there are up there now, Ron? Oh, God. <laughs> I have no idea. Well, the last I count no I saw in an article that was, you know, delving with something that just had a count in there of maybe a year or so ago, 323. I'm sure it's 350 plus by now. That, well, that you know, being, Go ahead, Ron. Go ahead. No, I, I was just going to mention quickly, didn't mean to cut you off there, <clears throat> but I read been five or six years ago that the federal laws alone number in excess of 43 million laws. Yeah. Just the federal laws. How ridiculous. You know, anyway, go ahead. Brent, you had an observation or a question? Oh, yeah. Um well, that lawyer you had mentioned from Eastern Colorado, no, not a lawyer. He was a veterinarian. Yes, he's a veterinarian. A veterinarian, right? Yeah, yeah. he was uh, involved in a case that uh, he's, he's still involved, I think, with National Organization for Raw Materials. And that all related back to uh, the farm, the farm, the farm uh, regulations that set parity for farm prices back during the Roosevelt administration. And uh, the Congress then uh, fixed it, but then the federal government has ignored it. They uh, during the the Eisenhower administration, they just dropped it and said we're not going to do this anymore. But when they did do it, it worked out great. As a matter of fact, this whole thing about parity was a good idea. When I was growing up, my father was a, 
member of the NFO, as some people probably remember me mentioning. We were organized at that time in the National Farmers Organization, organized in the counties, and Dad was the secretary in our county. And what they tried to do was instead of just taking whatever they give you at the grain elevator or the or the stockyards, uh, we uh, <clears throat> tried to uh, bargain for prices, and we had collection points. And he was involved in that, and it all came down to uh, farmers and uh, livestock producers weren't making any money because, like gold and silver prices in the stock market, the people that had the power of the traders and the bankers were controlling the prices, and, of course, they were hammering the producer of raw materials from pillar to post. And it's always been that way. It's never changed. And the fight to try to get a uh, price for raw materials, again, we haven't left the subject. We're talking about land. Brent, the land is what produces raw materials, and we don't have anything without it. What's that, Roger? Can I inject something here? Was there a futures market? Oh, sure. Was there a futures market back there when your dad, when this was going on? It sounds like kind of collective bargaining from a union standpoint. Where That's, and, what, that's what it was. Yeah. That's what it was. No, was there, that's, we we was, called it that. Were yeah. they controlling the price with the futures market back then? Was the Chicago market in existence? Oh, they were controlling it. Oh, they were controlling everything. Okay. And so what this fellow, the other fellow was involved, uh, this veterinarian, somebody came along later, the, all that movement was real strong back in the sixties, but it kind of died away. Uh, there are vestiges of it in the national organization of raw materials. By the way, they have a conference call national organization of raw materials. Go to their website. They have a conference call twice a week You can get on, listen to it and learn about what parity is and how that was supposed to work and what legislation says. But of course, uh, by this time, the rancher and the farmer is destroyed and, um, he, his numbers are so low and the corporate farms and ranches have picked up so big. And of course we're seeing the, the final death blow to farming and ranching in America with the, the Bundy case and other cases like that, that aren't spoken of as much. That one was visible, but uh, we're seeing the destruction of it because the evil empire has to get their hands on the land. They know land and the evil one behind it all, the useful idiots behind the useful idiots, knows that land is the key to what God wants. And most people that are involved, they want to talk about the rights of man and man has a right to a lodial title. You're wasting your time. You're going to flop, flatter, and a flitter. You're not going to get anywhere. The only thing that drives the true law is adherence and loyalty to the true lawgiver. And thinking that, that you correct. have rights, thinking you have rights because you have rights begs a question that you're not answering and it will, you won't have the perseverance to move on. And the, the question is, where did my rights, which are responsibilities, they are duties. That's what they are. They're not options. And they're duties that are given to each person individually and a little bit differently, by the way, by the maker of heaven and earth. He gives them direct, no institution, <laughs> no priesthood, no church, no government comes between you and your maker, he drops it on you at your creation in his, in, out of his holy imagination. He thought, he, he pictured what you would, you look like and what you would be like. And then he made you out of his holy imagination. And by the way, as it is said, it's a crime to return the compliment and make him in your imagination. Doesn't work. He'll hate you for it and he'll get you. Don't do that. You know, He'll destroy everything. Go ahead. You Go you ahead. were mentioned. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I got my mind goes 100 miles an hour. <clears throat> uh huh. But uh -huh. Uh, I'm the chairman of 
an organization. It's a mining district, uh, largest mining district in the United States called Jefferson Mining District. And you were on, we have a website, <clears throat> a lot of information on that. It's called uh, jeffersonminingdistrict.com for those of you who may be interested in law about minerals. Uh, I would, uh, what popped in my mind when you were talking about about land, uh, the Department of Geology and Mineral Industries of Oregon had a film that you could that they would rent out, and the title of that film, and I'd love to get a copy of it, but I'm having a hard time trying to find it. So, any of your research people there that's listening today, if you can find that video, I would truly, truly be holding and pay for it, whatever. But the geology department moved, and nobody knows what happened to it. But it was a mining promotional film called Out of the Rock. And it showed freeways and skyscrapers and medical things and all kinds of inventions and ships and airplanes and on and on all across knives and forks and cups and pitchers and coffee pots and sinks. And it's a mining promotional film. But about three quarters of the way through it, it asks the most compelling question. And the question is this, and I quote, what would our life be like without mining? And so the, the, the camera focuses in on a woman in her kitchen. And then pretty soon the camera moves up to the clock on the wall in the kitchen. And the clock disappears. It moves over to the toaster. The toaster disappears. The, the uh, stove disappears. The windows disappear. The countertop disappears. The cabinets disappear. The furniture disappears. The linoleum and carpet disappear. And on and on it goes until toward the last part of this, this woman is standing there in her house with nothing in it. And if it had taken to its full extent, the house would have all been gone as well. Correct. And she would have been standing there with no clothes on. Okay. <laughs> but the, <laughs> the point being, I don't know how many of you, and I'm, I'm, I'm going somewhere while I'm bringing this up. The, the Homestead Act was enacted by Congress in 1862. That's where the private sector could acquire land. That Homestead Act is an agricultural patent. There are 11 different patents that the United States issues. And the Homestead is, is just one of them. And in that act, one of the things that is in addition to the land that is inseparable, and that's water, Yes. And all the states and everything think that they have a right to the water. And I can show you in law without question of the fact that the states cannot own the water. They can do the paperwork on the administrative of the, the um, uh, oh, what's it, trying to think of the name, appropriation of a water right. They don't own it. They can just do the paperwork. But the water belongs to the people, and if it's under a patent, whatever your agricultural ground is out here, that's why 
if you got a lot and out in the country just out of town and you got five acres, you drill a well, that water is yours. If the water rains down from heaven within your boundary, that water is yours. If there's a subterranean water and you want to tap into it, that's yours. Anything that is within the boundary of that patent relative to the to water belongs to that land without question. That was the intent of Congress under the, under the Homestead Act. Now, you get to the mineral patent. The mineral uh, legislation came out directly after the Civil War. Both the North and the South were deficient of ammunition and, and guns and rifles and pots and pans and whatever. What's interesting about the mineral estate grantee uh, H.R. 365, it's called. There are 11 sections under that act, and they're all, they're all granted. They're all granted, which means that nobody can come and take that away from them. Now, what's interesting about the, the, the mineral estate, that the Congress joined with that act the portion of national defense. If you go to Title 30, Section 1801 to 1811, you will see national defense, national defense, national defense. That's why the farmers, the mineral producers, the timber people, and manufacturing are called producers. Producers are not to have regulations that inflict any type of their production because they're, they are protected by law, and we're not protecting them. And the American people don't know enough. I, I have a saying. Let, let me interrupt here for a minute. When the uninformed have now been informed, they choose to be informed or they choose to be dishonest. Correct. And the reason I bring that up, you can approach and tell people the truth, and they want to totally ignore it. I see it every day. Yep. I see it every day. We do too, but Ron. The point that I'm, yeah, the point I'm trying to make here and emphasize to your listeners, you heard a farmer, you heard everybody. Last I knew, we all like to eat. You heard a timber man, you heard everybody. Everybody needs a home to live in and dresser drawers and whatever. You heard a mineral man, I'm telling you, there's no hope. You heard a manufacturer because without a manufacturing, there is no commerce. Commerce and producers are not one and the same. A producer, when he makes a product, belongs to him until such time as he sells it. If a producer produces a product, loads it on his truck, and drives 100 miles to the market, that product belongs to him, and he's to be protected in that journey, both in the manufacturing and the transportation of that. When he gets there and he receives money, now it's in commerce. The money that the farmer or the mineral man or the manufacturer or whatever is not in commerce when he gets paid his money. And boy, most people do not understand that. No, that's very that's why we better 
we better protect our producers and our farmers and our timbermen and our mineral people. Do you realize that we're losing almost 1,200 acres a day, 365 days a year for the last 30 years? Now, boy, if that doesn't concern people, I don't know what does. We're going to wake up one day. We're going to wake up one day with nothing on our grocery shelves and nothing at the hardware store and nothing at the lumber yard. We keep squeezing and squeezing and ignoring our producers. We're going to pay the piper one day. You uh, you pick a lot of nits and split a lot of hairs like we like to do around here. we got a couple of people that have piled up since the start, and, and we've been just letting Ron and Brent kind of carry it. Um, Chris was on first. Terrence has joined us. Jim Ram's on there. I'm not sure which one of you had questions uh, for any of us or Ron particularly, but let's start with Chris since he was the earliest, and I know that he will probably shake Ron's hand down there in Kingman, Arizona on the 1st of March, but you might make a little introduction right now ahead of time, Chris. Why, thank you so much, Roger, for having both. Ron and Brent on in the same day because these are both prodigious writers of critical for American values information to know to secure the freedom and blessings of liberty that we all are bound and duty bound to enjoy. I am looking forward to meeting Ron in person, perhaps sharing food with him uh, one evening to share some special knowledge I've acquired on my battle for freedom and liberty and to secure private grants of land-made patent uh, in Arizona in particular, and I've got one upcoming in Oklahoma, uh, well, same thing. The uh, Treaty of Guadalupe Hildago, for those who don't know, that's nine statutes at large, 922. That's a congressional act, and that these simple absolute titles in a lodium that we all talk about, the land patent, is the blessings of liberty that are dependent upon all private rights of land that all other rights flow from. So with that, I will give Chris, the table back to two well, learned informers. I've got a question. You quoted the uh, Treaty of Hidalgo there. I can't say it right. From the statutes at large. Did, did they carry it over to the United States Code? They yes, did not. They did. They did? What, oh, set, they what did. title is it in? The, before California and other states became states uh, as a result of the Guadalupe Hidalgo Treaty, those land grants that were given by Mexico are just as rock solid as the land patent issued by the United States. Right. And the United States has to honor those. And they're perpetual. In other words, they're forever. Right. And you know what's interesting about uh, his question? <clears throat> that <clears throat> the, the the land patent, as I shared earlier, is forever. To the heirs and assigned forever. And I'm looking at my watch, and you know what? Forever isn't up yet. <laughs> so that land uh, patent must still be valid. One and, other thing... Ron, is the other foundational black letter law case. Where's the feedback coming from? Where's the feedback coming from? The land patent premise. 
Chisholm versus Hold on. Before that, Chris, hold on. Let's find out. Chris. Absolutely exponentially important for all to learn. Okay, the echo's gone, so that's all. I was just going to interrupt because I didn't want that echo interfering with anything we're trying to get across conceptually. Yeah, I, I couldn't I couldn't hear anything. Go ahead, Chris, repeat that. Somebody had something on in the background. Try again, buddy. I'm sorry. I, something happened on my phone that created an echo. I apologize. But Chisholm versus Georgia is the Seminole Supreme Court black letter law that delineates the purpose, the Founders created to create the patents, uh, the, the perpetuity of ownership of lands that are so critically for the survival of the states, the several states united, to be able to supply everything that we need on our countries and not be reliant on our enemies to supply our needs. Okay. Uh, let me move over to Terrence. Terrence, you know, are you still with us? It shows that you are. Yeah, I hope I'm not too noisy. I was stopped when I first called in. I just wanted to ask Ron. Uh, I, I was introduced to patents by a gentleman named Bill Monroe, and he helped uh, the people of California stop Disney World from uh, seizing land and expanding on them. Uh, but I wanted to ask you, all of the state of Michigan except one square mile in the center of Cass Lake was patented before Michigan became a state. So my question is, how does a state have any authority whatsoever? I mean, are they a blanket? Are they a, you know, a, a layer above? The state has no authority over any of that. I want to pull something up uh, quickly, if I can, here. Uh, I want to read this to you. Let me get out of here. Uh, got any more? Uh, but to answer your question, very equivocally, that the state has no jurisdiction over private land. Now, I want to mention something here. When they, going back in my conversation with you folks earlier, remember when I shared they took the patents away and they issued a warranty deed? Yes. In doing that, they changed the definition. They now, instead of calling it land purchase, it's now called real estate purchase right they like real estate sell hey ron the real estate yes they really like changing definitions <laughs> well let me share something with you that in 1997 there's a famous case called northwest mining association versus department of interior and bruce babbitt uh -huh. the blm and the bureau of land management and babbitt we're always changing definition to the detriment of the miners. So Northwest Mining Association, which is very solvent financially, sued them in federal court in Washington, D.C. And Judge Green uh, over uh, was the presiding judge. And the evidence was so overwhelming that the Northwest Mining Association won that case on motion for summary judgment. In other words, there was no reason to go forward with any furtherance of the trial or testimony or whatever. And Judge Green told the, the Bureau of Land Management and Babbitt, you're guilty of uh, redefining legal terms. Um, you're guilty of redefining legal terms. 
I think Babbitt and, was from Alaska, wasn't he? No. Uh, he was from uh, Arizona. Okay. I thought he was Alaska. Yeah, he was from Arizona. But uh, let me see if I can find this here real quick. Because I want to read something to you. That was that the same Judge any Green? Other? Was that the same Judge Green that broke up AT and T? Probably was. I, I I don't know, but this was a federal judge. She was in Washington D.C., so it could be. While uh, Ron is looking for his citation, Bruce Babbitt is who one who basically created the Conservancy Trust and stole a lot of New Mexico, Arizona, and Utah, Colorado lands under their so-called nature conservancy scheme. Mm -hmm. They're not just domestic. Well, he, they have bought a bunch of land down in Patagonia, also nature conservancy. They own a bunch of that Patagonian land in southern Argentina. And he owns a, a mine and a big ranch in Arizona. What a hypocrite. Yeah. I want to read you something. This is out of a 1982 court case. And the court case is Beach Grove Investments versus Michigan Civil Rights Commission. Okay. And it says, government jurisdiction does not extend into or onto real or private property. Mm -hmm. The right to purchase and hold property is a fundamental right of citizens beyond the power of the state to deny any citizen, period. Property ownership cannot be, be a cause for government to force or coerce uh, title holders of property to do anything against his or her will. The title holder has full control over their property and has the right of non-interference from all other parties. How's that? Pretty succinct. I'm sorry? Pretty succinct. Wonderful language. I'm sorry. It's a big blur on my ear. Thing oh, here. That, I was just saying that, that was right on, right on, nail on the head. I use, oh, yes. I yes. use the word succinct, but, uh, you know, colloquialize it a bit. Oh, okay. Um, I see what you're now saying. Now, that yeah. was something in Michigan. Was that a Michigan case? I'm assuming that it was uh -huh. because it's a Michigan Civil Rights Commission. So. Ooh. Ooh. Throw that, civil rights, being, throw that civil rights phrase around a little bit. <laughs> no, thank you. I gave our, mine back. They told me I had some of those things, and I told them I didn't want them and sent them back. So they got a couple extra pairs of shackles up there in D.C. at the Secretary of State's division. Well, I think you can well see that there's, there's something dreadfully wrong in our country. Woo. And we, we had better get together and stand up and step forward in defense Oh, we're not going to have it. And once you lose it, you can never get it back. Our problem, Ron, is there's so few of us that are motivated and will. And the word you missed earlier when you were talking about your progeny, your protege, 
was courage. Yes. Because it takes courage and sacrifice to do this. And sacrifice was the word I, I was I was aiming for. And I'll tell you my personal experience here. And I told you a little bit about John and Glenn, my teachers, the other day when we spoke briefly. And they had they only operated for six months. The IRS only let them go for six months. Now, at the same time, back in those days, there was a guy named Phil Marsh hanging around. Do you ever remember seeing that name? I don't know if you got into the tax, into all this or not. Uh, they let that guy go for five years, man. He went around the country giving seminars. and un- He put the word in the Patriot lexicon, untax. He was going around, quote, unquote, untaxing people. Um, 414, I'll call you back in a minute. Uh, and, um, they let him go for five years, even let him get on a- ABC with, with, uh, Geraldo Rivera or one of those guys on Friday night for an hour one time. Okay. But they only let John and Glenn go six months. And, uh, out of the 1200 students that they had with other students, such as Richard McDonald, okay. Who went on his own path after that. And I mentioned to you the other day, another one of their real notable students who I didn't meet, but I know was there, was a guy of pretty high reputation in California from what I've been able to ascertain, and his name was Don Rogers. And he was a senator in California for quite some time and, and very respected. He was one of John and Glenn's students also. They had 1,200 paid students that went through the course, which was predominantly accenting on taxes and taxation. And out of those 1,200... I was the only one that carried it further, okay? And so when they, when you told that story early, it was particularly poignant to me, all right, personally. And I understand what it takes to walk this path and the quote-unquote sacrifices that need to be made. Brent's made them. You've made them. I've made them. Chris has made them. Chris, who was speaking with you earlier and probably get the pleasure of meeting you here before the month's out, is probably the single most persecuted individual that I've seen since I've been in this thing. And he's in the Las Vegas area, and, buddy, they don't like him one bit, okay? And this goes back four or five years now. This isn't any recent occurrence. Uh, But anyway, I'm so happy to have Samuel turn us on to you because I didn't know you existed out there. And I'm so pleased that we were able to get you on today with a man that I just consider such, have such a high opinion on because we've been doing these programs for two two hours a, a, a day for five or six years now. And Brent and I have never even met personally, but we've certainly had a lot of things on these shows that we've revealed and have become real clear that both of us were kind of staggered by when it came out, I think, honestly, would be truthful. Uh, does anybody else on the board that's sitting there have a question that you wanted to address to Ron while we've got him today. I got one, Roger. Okay, Jim. Jim Ram. Um, Ron, thanks for being on today. This is great information. Um, I uh, Years ago, I um, obtained copies of my uh, land patent from Washington, D.C., and uh, went through the county recorder's office and traced all my you know all the property owners from myself clear back to the original patent which was uh issued in i think it was 1804 by uh, and signed by thomas jefferson so um, i'm assuming your book uh, explains how to uh, bring everything current and make it official um that's my first question 
my second one, real quick, is have you run into any situations where people have done this and then be been denied services like fire services where you're not paying taxes so you, they don't give you fire services and things like that? Uh, that's my second question. Well, that's a very, very good question, first of all. Uh, your, your first question again was what again? I'm sorry. I, uh, I got a copy of my, uh, the land patent that includes my, uh, property and I have traced all the records. You know, I, I've gone back from, uh, the original land patent owner and brought it forward as far as I've got the records of everybody who's owned it up to and including myself. And I'm assuming that your book explains how to, what the process is to officially uh, make the land patent current, including my property, so we're covered. Yes, it does, to answer your okay. question. Okay. And to answer the, sec the second question, <clears throat> there, there's a, a moral issue when we're dealing with land and land titles and whatever. If, in fact, your intent... A person's intent is to cut off everything to be paid to anybody for any reason. That's I, I would strongly encourage you, don't do it. Because, and what I mean by that is <clears throat> that if you go to the grocery store and you want a loaf of bread and a dozen eggs and, you know, package of bacon, you have to be willing to pay for it. Right, and the same the same applies if you have uh, police and and you you get yourself off of the tax roll, then in essence make a con go to the sheriff and say hey I want to make a contribution of five hundred bucks Good a year or or whatever. Right, let him know that you're in support of him, both uh, personal support and financial support. Don't cut him off because they're out there trying to do the best they can do as far as, as uh, law enforcement is concerned. And the same thing with the fire department. Go to the fire chief and say, hey, I want to make a contribution, and I'm going to make an annual contribution. It's amazing what that does. Now, let me say, when you bring your land patent forward, as I mentioned to your question, my book is very detailed about what to do and how to bring it forward. However, I want to make a suggestion. I'm not pushing on anybody, but if you want to bring your land patent forward, then let me put the legal document portions together because it is a legal document and it has to be done correctly. There's a woman in California decides she do it on her own and she put all the pertinent stuff that she thought would make it work, never bothered to buy my book. And she ended up going to jail for seven years. So my point of it is what I do is totally lawful and legal. But the point of it is it has to be done correct. Now, if you want me to do that, I charge $750 and I get your document back that you can go to the bank with it, so to speak. Mm -hmm. I've never, ever, ever had one reputed. Never. Cool. That's awesome. I definitely will be buying your book. Well, one other thing, one other thing, if I may, I've got a land patent seminar uh, in uh, uh, Arizona, there in Kingman, Arizona, uh, on the first, which is a Sunday, and I would like to invite anyone who can come to that seminar. 
you'll get a lot out of it. So, like I say, it's an all-day seminar. Uh, Anna Vaughn Wrights is going to be there on Saturday, and my my seminar is on Sunday. But uh, and and I'm not affiliated with her. It just whoever uh, asks us to come, that's something that they were doing. So, okay. but uh, so anyway, like I say, it's 150 dollars. With that, you get a book. So if you want to buy a book and not come to the thing, Jim? you have my address, email, da 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 da. Jim. Okay. Jim. Yeah. You got a time yeah, share? Yeah, go ahead, Roger. You got a timeshare in Kingman? I wish I did. <laughs> is this the first of March? Yes. Yes, March uh, one. Is this Sunday? Okay. Yeah, I'll be uh, I'll be tied up in church. <laughs> Sorry. And plus, I'm in Ohio, so it'd be a pretty pretty good hike. But I will be getting your book. That's for sure. Looking forward to that. Um, anybody Thanks else so on the board? Before we run out of time, we got about 25 minutes or so. Anybody else on the board have a question for Ron or Brent or myself or anybody? Okay, I guess that means no. Brent, I'm going to turn it over to you here and let you say a piece or two because I know you've been sitting back there ruminating. Oh, sure, sure. Oh, yeah, I can't stop my brain either. But uh, somebody asked well, I'll go about uh, the state of Michigan or any state having any authority over, what would he say, land? Uh, it was Rex, I believe. Land, I didn't understand the question exactly, but I... I did take what I thought was my understanding. If it's not right, then he'll, he can call or somebody can say, no, I don't think that's what he meant. But within the boundaries of the states, land is is the business of that state. Mm-hmm. Uh, al- almost across the board, and that comes from our, our, ancient, our ancient common law. Land is a local matter. I mean, if a lawyer tries to file a deed in another state, tries to, for a client anywhere, uh, likely he'll get sanctioned because uh, their states are jealous about their jurisdiction over land, and that's just one example. Now, the way I get it, the way I understand it, just to back up, and some of this was mentioned a while ago, the 13 original colonies, of course, their land was granted, uh, the grant of land was from the crown of England. That is correct. So, yeah, we got... So now, and I'm following this through from where I'm from, because I'm familiar a little bit with that, because of just looking at land titles, every, people where I grew up had land, they were farmers. So everybody knew what an abstract title was, even as a kid, I knew, and I'd looked at them. And you can take them, they're a pile of papers, and they're, they're, they're cut down to where they're small, and you just can pick them up from the top to the bottom, and just keeps going back, and you get to the bottom, and there'll be a, a land patent there. And where I'm from, usually the land patents, most of them were signed by uh, President Andy Jackson because that part of the world wasn't settled until a little later. But um, the reason Andy Jackson, for example, where we were from, signed those patents was because that land where we were from, as land north of us and south of us, that land, uh, the the respective colonies that which had become states had donated to the general government in Washington, D.C., in an act of magnanimity to help pay the war debt. And where I lived, uh, all that land where I lived was um, the colony of Virginia. So all Virginia had a, a, a grant of land from the coast as far as men knew there was land. At that time, that didn't amount to much more than clean to the Mississippi River. 
Well, during the war, uh, George Rogers Clark received uh, letters of authority from Governor Patrick Henry of Virginia. And uh, he had 160 men, and they went to take back that land, not for the United States. This is during the Revolution, but they came west to take the land, not for the United States, but for the colony of Virginia, or the state mm -hmm. then of Virginia, because um, the British had moved into the that land, uh, and namely the area of, uh, well, the Wabash River Valley, where I'm from, and, and there was a, a fort the British had taken from the French there called Fort Vincennes, which, just to put it on the map, that's the home of uh, Red Skelton, if you remember Red. There was Vincennes, and then there was Cahokia, Illinois, which is just which was west of Vincennes on the Mississippi River. And he was given authority from the governor of Virginia to come and capture those two forts. And by so capturing those two forts, he would take back all of those hundreds of millions of acres from Britain. And he did it. He did it because there was nobody lived there in those days. And he surprised both of them. And uh, the first place he went to, Cahokia, he took that without firing a shot. And the British were... Uh, course, out there in the middle of the edge of the world, they were happy to see some white folk, and so they held a big ball. They all partied together, danced with the ladies, the French ladies, although it was a British port. And then they came back from Cahokia, which was on the Mississippi River. They came back east across in the early spring, and the, all the rivers and creeks were filled with ice. And it was nothing but blame near walking in water for hundreds of miles back across the other side of what is the Illinois Territory, to Vincennes, Fort Vincennes on the Ohio River, and they took that. Well, they took that all for the colony of Virginia. And then when the war was over, uh, Virginia, along with Connecticut and some other of the colonies, they ceded all those western lands west, pretty much west of the Alleghenies to the general government to pay the war debt, and it was legislation was put in place to sell that land for $5 an acre to the first comers. And they wanted to settle it quick. And boy, people started pouring through the Cumberland Gap, which they had already were coming into Kentucky, and then down the Ohio Valley, and they began to spread north from the Ohio River and south, but mostly north at that point into the Northwest Territories because that land was so rich, and this is not an exaggeration, it was so rich, the dirt was so black, the topsoil was so deep, the trees wouldn't even grow on it. And the first people that got there said, well, this land's no good because trees won't grow on it. Well, that wasn't true. It was so good that trees won't grow on it, and that's the land now that produces 250 bushel an acre corn. Well, the, the, the title then was by land patent from the sovereign. The sovereign was the U.S. government was given to, uh, the patents were given to the people that would purchase, and that land went pretty quick. That's why there's no hardly any federal land. Well, there isn't any federal land at all in that part of the world, except federal courthouses and military bases. And the Constitution requires that if there's a military base, which is federal land, or land for a federal courthouse, uh, a lot in a city, if the state doesn't submit to that, they won't get the land. Uh, the Constitution says that. Well, of course, the states have always been... Uh, glad to cooperate with the national government and they've always done that and uh so there is no for all practical purposes there is no federal land uh west of the mississippi river there is no federal land in texas for 
uh, reasons Ron mentioned well ago. But then all that other land going out through Kansas, Nebraska, the Homestead Act of 1862 or three, I forget which what it was. Now, Ron, you'd said it was after the war. I believe it was during the war that uh, I think it was 63 that um, that but you can go look. I'll look, too. But Lincoln signed that into law to populate the arid or yeah the the arable the the not the arid the tillable tillable land of of the western territories kansas nebraska no what i said what i said was that the uh, homestead act was 1862 the mineral act hr 365 was 1866 which was after the civil war but then the Mining Act of 1872 was the cap on, on the Mineral Act of 66. But both of those acts had the same purpose. The Homestead Act was designed to populate with Americans the tillable land of the western United States. The mineral, the, the mining law of 1872, it came to be, uh, was designed to populate the mineralized lands of the United States, which of course included all that, the great American desert and Nevada and Arizona and New Mexico. And, and that act, the Homestead Act has fulfilled its purposes over and it's no more. The, the mineral, the mining law of 1872, its purpose is not fulfilled. Uh, we have not populated the mineralized areas of the United States. And that act is still in force. You can still theoretically, uh, patent mining claims. However, Bill Clinton put a moratorium as an executive chief. He said, I'm not going to enforce it anymore, even though it's law, which he has the right to do. He had the right to do as a matter of law in our common law government because he's separate and independent and co-equal. And he didn't have to take command from anybody, just like the other two branches of government, uh, perpetual Mexican standoff, which I find is something that folk somehow don't grasp at all. They think that I had somebody say today, I'll throw up one other thing that, uh, yeah, today it was, yeah, this guy hates the Constitution, and he does a good job arguing against it, and I'm going to, uh, Lord willing, we're going to have a trial on that question in, uh, on the 28th of, of March, I mentioned it on here before, in Everton, Missouri, but he makes the point over and over again that judges are uh, an independent power, that's wholly untrue, independent of the other branches, that's wholly untrue mm-hmm. in this way. The judges don't have hardly any power at all. All they have is black robes, authority, and prestige, and people are dumb enough to do what they say. That's what it boils down to. Uh, judges are charged with giving opinions. The law that they put, that we, Ron, a while ago you called law, and I know what you mean when you say mm-hmm. that. When they, when they say this is what we believe in this case, that's true for that case. And other judges in that jurisdiction, by an unwritten law, what the strongest of unwritten laws in our common law tradition are bound to follow the principles of that former case. This fellow also said that five of four justices of the Supreme Court make law. Well, that's not true either. But again, that's a that's a custom. There is no law in the United States anywhere that says any appellate court is a is a majority institution, and five out of four in that case uh, decides the case. That's just utter ridiculousness. We do it. That doesn't mean it's law. It's just what we've been doing for a long time since the country started. Uh, I don't even, it wasn't even since the country started. Listen, if you, if there's a death penalty case and the decision is split five, four, what kind of a lunatic would say, well, let's go ahead and kill him. (laughs) Let's go ahead and murder him. 
No, no. The greatest legal minds in America can't agree. They couldn't agree at the district trial court level. They couldn't agree at the intermediate appellate level. They don't agree at the Supreme Court level. And it, the case is hanging in the balance. So if in doubt, let's just go ahead and kill him. That is ludicrous. It's always been ludicrous. It remains ludicrous. It is not true. Why are we doing that? Now, that I don't know. We say it's part of our tradition. It's not part of our common law tradition. No, huh? They, That's not what our common law says. They, uh, they'd call we, it custom and usage our, now, Brent. If you tried to bring that up, well, they'd I know they custom do. and usage. I know they do. I know they do. But if there's doubt, why not err on the side of the man whose life, liberty, property, or a combination thereof yeah. hangs in the balance? Why, we, we, we always should. The presumption should be against the holders of power, the greater power they have. Matter of fact, that is our common law tradition. Presumption, the presumption is against of the innocence. holders of power, and the Correct. greater the power, the greater presumption against them. And now our courts are enforcing, yes, enforcing just the opposite. Again, since the administration of Roosevelt and the things you fellas talked about uh, a while ago. By the way, all this stuff, the bankruptcy and all the things they do, that, that uh, those things are not law. No. And I, for one, will not say they're law. Oh, we're in bankruptcy. No, we aren't in bankruptcy. The, the H-E-double-L with these guys, that's all fraud. Yes. I won't say that. Correct. And I don't want other people to say it. I wanted us all to get in the habit. This is one of my callings in life. I know what you mean when you say that. Uh, so I, I'm, we're on the same side here. I understand. But no, it's not true. I don't want to say it because to say it is to admit to it. And that's the thing, Roger, that we constantly <laughs> talk about here. We don't want to admit to what they're saying. Well, what I've found is that to address it is the only way that you can, in their system, get the freedom. I mean, it's just the path that I, you know, walked down and, and, and found all this stuff. I want to get for we end 414. I'm so sorry. When you called a minute ago, there's so many things happening. I forgot to call you back. You called again. I got you. How you doing? Do you have a quick question or comment? 414. Well, hi, Roger. This is Daryl. I'm oh, on hey, my cell phone. Thank you. Yeah. Hey, uh, uh Hello to everybody on here. Time is short. Uh, Ron, I, I spoke with you a couple of weeks ago uh, and uh, a couple of times, and I, I bought your book. And uh, I actually bought both books, and uh, I only received one. <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking the other one will show up in the mail. Um, uh, I fully intend to exercise uh, your remedies and... Uh, to uh, try to overcome the uh, premeditated trespass on uh, God's creation, uh, our property, and our inheritance, and uh, I have a I have a new website that we've put up that addresses a lot of issues. And uh, since you don't have a website, I would like to volunteer to list your information on our website and contact information, and maybe we can talk about that later. Well, how kind of you. Would you would you do something for me? Would you send yes. me an email? Uh, send yeah. me an email and let me know that you have not. How long ago did you receive the one book? You received the patent book? Yeah, I, I got the land patent book. Uh, what would that be? That would have been on Tuesday of this okay. week. And and uh, I'm still waiting the, uh, the uh, you're not a slave. But Okay. Uh, then send, send me an email. Send me an email and state that you didn't and your phone number. Then we we can talk about this other stuff. But I want to be sure that you get that book. We've had a lot of trouble with the mail, and nobody seems to be able to 
figure out what it is. But you're not the first one to call and said they didn't get the book. So that that's why yeah. I need to know so I can file an official complaint. But let me know. Get a hold of me. Daryl, please, Daryl, please give that website, would you, Daryl? The website. Yeah, uh, our, our new website uh, where Michael and Gaddy and I will be uh, doing broadcast is called <clears throat> Embracing the Obvious. And uh, it's just all all the letters run together. It's called Embracing the Obvious. And uh, you know, we're, we're going to aggregate information and provide, uh, try to, you know, like Roger's information and, and Ron here, that give people traction where they can actually go from being outraged to being activated and employing uh, uh, lawful remedies uh, based upon, uh, well, you know, everybody's, uh, your work. So That's thank you very we, much. That's uh, what we everybody. do here. And I'm happy to have Ron yeah. come in and add another facet. Ron, I'll, I'll give you a ring either later today or over the weekend or something. And we'll definitely have you back okay. because we've got a lot of unfinished business we haven't even touched on to discuss. Uh, Brent, Glad you and Ron got to meet and had an opportunity to exchange, and maybe you, you guys, I'm sure you'll be in contact. And we'll be back Monday at the regular time, 11 to 1. You guys have a real nice weekend. The guy that asked a question, Jim Ram, during the show, he's next. Stay tuned for him, and I'll uh, see you guys on Monday. Good, good, good program. Have a great weekend. See you later. From Thank Ecuador. you all. Ciao, Appreciate ciao, it. amigos. Bye-bye. Roger, thank, thank you, Daryl. Yeah, we're off the air. We, yeah, we got we got kicked off uh, kicked off of the server. <laughs> so, uh, good show, guys. Really, really good ground covered. Is really, really good show. I feel good today. So, thank you, everybody that contributed. Well, thank you for allowing me to be on there. Enjoyed it, and uh, hope you have me back. Uh, don't worry, Great we stuff. will, brother. I'll talk to y'all. Ciao, ciao.